Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a producer here at the IAI. And I'm Charlie, and I'm senior producer here at the IAI. So, Charlie, today we've got the passion of reason. This debate features well-known philosopher and author Julian Pagini, philosopher of race Tommy Curry, and acclaimed geneticist based at the Francis Crick Institute, Ganesh Taylor. It took place at How the Light Gets In 2022, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. This debate explores reason, emotion, and the age-old question of whether they can be separated or whether they are necessarily interlinked. So, Charlie, how do you feel about it? It Was Hume right when he said that reason is a slave of the passions? Well, I think we're all long past the idea that reason and emotion are entirely separate entities since the fabulous work of Antonio Damasio explaining that they're all very important things in decision making. I think the really interesting thing is Tommy Curry in this debate didn't even think that reason plays a particularly important role in decision making. Mm. It's just a post hoc uh, justification for our emotional states. And Julian Bergini and Ganesh Taylor were obviously somewhere more in the middle there. Wonderful. Well, plenty to look forward to but before we get into it remember if you did enjoy today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers let's now hand over to our host for this debate acclaimed philosopher and regular how the light gets in festival host barry smith so for centuries, we have assumed reason to be ruthlessly independent of passion, or as we say, emotion. And yet Nietzsche argued that reason is an emotional experience. And now neuroscientists have claimed that sad moods can trigger systematic and logical thinking. Now, there are some further studies that have shown that emotion plays a crucial part in grounding reason in reality and is essential to our making decisions. But is it a mistake to think reason and emotion are quite separate? And should we instead conclude they are deeply connected? Or does this threaten the calm and considered assessment of the events and the situations we're in required for social well-being and decision-making? Or does it liberate us to think that knowing there isn't only one rational way to think we can make better decisions? Now, with me to discuss these issues on my far right is Julian Bugini, who's a well-known philosopher, writer, journalist, part-time YouTube cook extraordinaire, I'm told. I need to look those up. He's also the author of numerous best-selling books on philosophy and the co-founder of The Philosopher's Magazine. My immediate right is Gunesh Taylor, who's a geneticist at the Francis Crick Institute and has debated the implications of genome editing in forums such as Fertility Fest, the Festival of Genomics, and Virtual Futures, as well as featuring on The Guardian's podcast, Science Weekly. On my right is Tommy Curry. 
He's a celebrated professor of philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, where he holds a personal chair in Africana philosophy and blackmail studies. His research focuses on Africana philosophy and critical race theory, anti-colonialism, and now public health. So would you join me in welcoming our speakers for this morning? Now, in the time-honored tradition of the How the Light Gets In Festival, I'm going to ask each of the speakers to address the same question and to set out their stall. And the question, is it a mistake to think that reason is separate from emotion? And Julian, if I could ask you to start, please. In the context may make a bit of a difference here, but in general, it's clearly a mistake. I just want to give a very simple example, which I hope is persuasive enough. People have been seeing a lot of the protests which have followed from the killing of Masa Amini in Iran. And people there are, these are very emotional protests. People are angry. They're frustrated. So there's a, a lot of emotion there. But if you think that this is just about emotion, it's got nothing to do with reason, you can't make sense of what's going on. Why are people angry? There are reasons for this. It is totally rational to be outraged at the way in which the Iranian government oppresses women in particular, but all of its population, really. So it's a very straightforward example of where you have a very strong emotional reaction, which can only be made sense of by thinking about the reasons for that anger. Because if there weren't the reasons, it would be misplaced. If people were taking to the streets and protesting over something that hadn't happened, or something that was totally reasonable, like a police force legitimately arresting a criminal and then prosecuting them, the emotion would be judged to be misguided, misplaced, etc. Even with the very strongest emotions, you can't really make sense of them and you can't assess them unless you tie them to the rational reasons people have for them. In broad terms, that's why I think, you know, obviously there's no absolute separation. Whether or not there are certain occasions where it is possible, desirable and necessary to keep emotion as far out from reason as possible is another matter. But a general separation just doesn't make sense. Julian, thank you. Gunesh. That's really interesting. So I am a biologist. And so as I read that question, I was going to say the question was, are they separate? Or I is think that the question is, is it a mistake to think that they're separate? Is it a mistake to think that they are separate? Yes and no. I think that reason is something that is not based in biology. It is a human activity to rationalize. It's something that you can collectively understand, right? It's about logic. It's about that kind of thing. Whereas an emotion, as I understand it anyway, is far more biological in its, in its genesis. It has, a, it has a basis in a physiological reaction. It is the base of most emotions has something to do with a reaction in your body. And you can post-rationalize those things. And sure, so you can bring reason to them. But I think that they should be separated. And that is the function. The power of reason is the fact that it is something that we can divorce from our emotions and will stand in its own to immediately get into. That's basically my point. But to immediately get into to hot water here, the point about the riots that you've just mentioned, Julian, I think is a person in that moment can have an emotional reaction. But the function of reason is that those of us in this room who are not in that moment, who are not physically in that space, not physically seeing those things, can still understand what the outrage is or what it's about, if that makes sense. So I think they should be kept separate, basically. 
Okay, not a mistake to separate, I think. No, We're getting good. No, not a mistake. Tommy, your thoughts? That's interesting. I think it's a mistake for us to say that reason and emotion are the same. But to suggest that there is an absolute situation or separation where reason is not the rationalization of an effective mode of human interaction and human rationality seems to be obviously false. If we think of the construction of reason from the Enlightenment time, or even going back to the ancient Greeks, we assume that's a faculty that allows us to reach to an ultimate truth. The ideas that we're getting from Plato and Aristotle is to see beyond kind of the illusion, if not delusions, of our social world. Yet at the same time, when they reflect upon this, it's not simply that we can see the sky clearly, that we can look and wonder our place in the world, but it's also recognizing that there is a basis by which certain civilizations seek to imitate themselves or establish social order. So if you read the laws by Plato, he makes this comment that the Egyptians were the first to come up with philosophy because in Egypt, the sky was clear and they were the first to look up to the sky. So we have to ask ourselves then, what is the human component of social interaction that allows us to come to similar conclusions? We can talk about, for instance, the protests, but I ask you, what? how do we account for the reason that can't see certain people as victims or human beings? What do we say about reason when it fails to correct dehumanization? Is that reason's natural aim, that Jewish people, Black people, pick any group of people you will, weren't human, and that's why they didn't interact with the genocide? If so, then that means reason's horribly flawed. I think a much better account would be that there's affectivity and there's ideas, there's interactions and sentiments that our bodies hold. And when you do those things in group and in mass, reason becomes the name that we give to the reflections of a group taking a specific course, which is why we see in the Enlightenment, reason had a certain aim and definition, which is why we see in the medieval times it had a different aim and definition, which is why we see in different cultures it had a different aim and different recognition. So I would say that it's a mistake to completely separate, but it's also a mistake to reduce them down to the same. I think the tendency in the battle that we have today is to give a total account of both human cognition and perception, such that when we ask the question, why did reason and the truth not operate or work in this certain situation or scenario, we understand the role that effectivity and emotion and social circumstance plays. I think that the one mistake that we have still is we're trying to use modern concepts that were developed on one specific geography that knew nothing about the world and hold that as the definitional apex of what reason is without taking into consideration now, given what we know, both in neurobiology, sociology, et cetera, how reason functions to actually make some grave mistakes and cause some of their greatest atrocities. Thanks, Tommy. So none of you want to reduce them down to a single uh thing which is somehow showing aspects of reason aspects of emotion all of you want some separation but there's a difference i mean julian thinks they might operate in tandem and that there's it's wrong to think that in the politics of feeling it's all just feeling there's a lot of rationality in there Gunnish is a much stronger position i think brave to, to think you've got this physiological biological embodied state of emotion and then there's something that goes on that's a little more detached from that now and we want to explore that and then tommy's interesting idea that rationality might be the justification of effective states or even a sort of collective idea of what that justification should be shared socially so we've got a lot of pieces on the table now let's go back to basics in the way that philosophers like to do if we're going to see the relation between reason and the passions or reason and emotions let's just try and get a grip on what they are what is reason 
what is thoughts and feelings, maybe, might be a first start. But Julian, can you start us off and say, if we're, if we're going to relate two things, we at least have to have a thought about what they actually are. Can you have a go? These terms are, like so many terms, that just seem transparent. You start to analyse them and they seem to be not transparent. Let's start with reason, because I think that I have a fairly kind of broad conception of what reason is. I think there's a sort of a certain temptation to think that reason is all about the formal processes of reasoning through sort of forms of logic and other sort of formalized forms of argumentation, scientific deduction, mathematics, etc. So to think that reason is really about this sort of rigorous following through in a kind of a logical way. And I think reason is more than that. I think that it goes to the sort of two related meanings of what a reason is. I think we're reasoning whenever we are trying to think things through on the basis of reasons. And it's a bit complicated, reasons of a certain sort. Not any old reason will do. They're the kind of reasons that we can share, that we can validate, that we can check, that we can understand and so forth. And some of the reasons we have to act are, and one of the connections is, our feelings, of course. Now, so to go to, so, so what is an emotion? I don't think I can really define that in the sense you, I think you know what it is. It's a feeling. It's affective state. I'm just, I'm just going to use other words. But I think I can't resist bringing in the obvious one, which is Hume. David Hume said that reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions, which was a, a lovely phrase, if not somewhat exaggerated, maybe. And the, the word slave is also perhaps a, a bad one for many reasons. But I think his point is this, that in order even to have anything to reason about, you've got to have some kind of motivation. And reason can't give you a motivation. So Going back to the example I started with, which is of the who basically is, it seems very clear she was basically killed by the morality police, right? Reason by itself can't tell you why this is awful, why this is bad, why you should care about it, right? Now that might sound odd, but it's just not, it's not like one and one equals two. It's not death plus whatever equals bad. We, it starts with some kind of affective judgment. We, we care about fellow beings. We appreciate there's a value to life. And th these things aren't things you can establish by principles of logic. They're rooted in our common humanity and our feelings. So from that point of view, feelings and emotions can themselves be reasons for action, which then we can then further reason about. Because it's important that we don't just take these emotions to be correct. So for example, there is an argument that certain forms of prejudice are quite natural in the sense that people respond more kindly to people who seem like themselves than others. That's the kind of an emotion that maybe is natural, I don't know. But if it were, that wouldn't be a reason to act on it. You have to think about it and challenge it. So there, it goes back to this idea of this interplay. But the point is, you can't, if you only had reason, you'd have no reason to do anything. Let's put it that way. So I'm struck by how radical you're being about all of this, all of you. So I, I, let me throw a little bit of a spanner into the works. I have to play devil's advocate here. Can, can't we also sometimes... Talk about being moved by reason made me do this. I couldn't look away because I, was, I saw the reason to act and that was motivational. That's one thing. And then the other thing, just put back to, the other thing is whether we couldn't think of cognitivists, as they're called, about the emotions who say there's certain anger that's justified and that's not justified. There's anger that's proportionate, disproportionate, as though there's some reasoned element there. So are you not, you're not tempted to have a few more players on the field, as it were, at this stage, and then I'm going to come to Gunesh. Well, I'm not sure that either of those points really go against what I've said. I think the second point seems to be a version of what I did say. The idea that we're motivated by reason. We have, I saw there was a reason to do something, and therefore I did. True, but I can't think of an example of that whereby 
if you were to push that and say, why was that a reason to act? You'd have to end up at something which was just a kind of desire. For example, I saw a reason to stop drinking. I saw a reason to stop drinking too much. A reason told me I, I love drinking. I, I drank loads. But reason, I couldn't ignore the evidence anymore. This was going to kill me. What's the problem with that? <laughs> it's going to kill you. So what? I care about not dying. Is that rational? Is it rational to care about not dying? In a sense, it, it sounds, of course it is. But no, it isn't because there are certain traditions which say we should be indifferent to death. There are philosophers who tell you that death shouldn't matter to you. It doesn't matter at all. So it's not like it's irrational to, to, not, to want to be happy to die. It's neither rational nor irrational. We want to live. So I can't, it's difficult to think of an example where you say... Shall I give you one? Yeah, give you one, yeah. So, I thought you'd think of one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the philosopher John McDowell often says, you see someone in need and that gives you a reason to act. Doesn't mean that you'll be motivated to do it. Sometimes we walk away, sometimes we feel very bad and sometimes we know that we had the desire to do it, but you had a claim on you to act when someone was in need. Okay, but that's okay, but that's true. But that, but you're so you're distinguishing between seeing a reason and that being a motivation. The point is, any individual reason by itself isn't a sufficient reason to act. So I have, you have reasons to help he thinks someone. He it is, but it doesn't mean you can't overcome it by your bad attitude. It's not just bad. You have a reason to help. You have a reason not to help. You've got an appointment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You have to make a judgment about which of these reasons is a more important reason to act. Now, it doesn't seem to me that by rationality alone you're going to be able to conclude that one thing is a reason, better reason than another. Because rationality alone can't tell you why it's bad that you're just, take, you're just taking the purely selfish reasons to override it. Let's say I'm a monster. I see somebody in need, they're dying, but I'm actually really looking forward to my coffee, so I can't be bothered. My reason, I've got a reason to continue and walk by, and I've got a reason to help. I choose the reason to go and have the coffee. That makes me a horrible person person. It doesn't make me irrational, does it? There's nothing irrational about that. It's just monstrous and they're different. I but think it would that, be is, irrational for John is, McDowell, but there you are. But is, would cool. that be a reason or would that be an emotion that's driving that? Again, this is just yeah. my understanding of the world, but I think that emotions come first always because my perception of the world as a biological entity means that that's how I perceive it. So in that moment when you see the homeless person, but you want your coffee, the decision to help somebody is to do with empathy. It's to do with that moment of an emotional engagement. All the reasons are there. I don't have to see the homeless person to know they exist to do something. So actually, when you were talking a moment ago, Judy, and I was thinking that's really funny because when the pandemic started, nobody saw anything. Nobody really heard anything personally, but we were given reasons. We were told, yeah. here is a reason Science says X, Y, Z, you've all got to stay at home. And we did. But I suspect most of us did it for an emotional reaction to the information, the reason we were given. It wasn't just the reason itself that made most people do it. We all thought we were, in fact, the media pled with us to do that. Think of your grandmother, think of your father, think of all these people. Right? But, but the reason I thought this was more in your corner where you had this nice separation between our visceral embodied sort of responses, physiological, and then this sort of higher thought because the reason for invoking your higher detached dispassionate thinking is because we don't always have enough empathy if you're relying on empathy to help the stranger and you don't have it that's a bad idea so you want to say you've got a reason to do it whether you empathize or not so isn't so i want you to bring us back to that higher thought and say what is it doing and the okay 
So my understanding of how this works, I'm not a cognitive scientist, I should say this completely disclaimer here, but my understanding of how this works is we are biological organisms, we have reactions to things, and emotions are a critical part of that. We see them in animals, or we know that for ourselves, there, there are emotions. And we also see, importantly, temporally across our lives, children far more emotionally dysregulated than adults, right? So emotion is clearly important. Reason, reason is what sets us apart from other animals as far as we can tell, because we have this ability to externalize this, this thing that we can describe about the world and pass it from one person to another who might have very different emotional states and emotional beings or reference points or different parts of the earth have le lived very different lives. And reason should stand to reason. That's the point of it. And I'm not saying they don't feed back onto each other and that reason doesn't elicit emotion. And I'm not even saying that emotion can't sometimes sneak its way into reason, but pure reason should be divorced from emotion. It should exist in its own right, even when you're not emotional. I'm going to ask Tommy about pure reason. Yeah, I'm lost on that distinction. So if we take the examples we've been dealing with and we suggest something like, let's use the homeless person for the example. Let's say that there's a rational process that stands away from emotion. Okay, so I see a homeless person. There's some a priori duty to help the homeless person. My question would be, what happens when reason doesn't point out that the homeless person should be helped? Is that a failure of reason or is that just not reason that causes that to happen? So what I'm suggesting is that if we, I agree that there is a capacity that human beings have to reflect about the world. But what I'm suggesting is that the capacity to do so is not pure reason. It's the same way that we have the capacity to build societies and social hierarchy. The same way ants build anthills Reason seems to be the capacity we have to create justifications for social order that don't necessarily or hardly ever in history operate individually. We've continually said that it's a capacity that free, autonomous, rational individuals have. But when we go back from Hume to Kant and all the neo-Kantians, you see that reason is very, has very much a social. It operates within the certain parameters set up by the group. So in the world where the homeless person grabs our attention, our empathy, that's not simply because it does, it's because we have a construct in our social world of a person who has a home and a person who doesn't have a home. And that the person who doesn't have a home is somehow violated by a social norm or individual failure because our norm is that people should have homes. So there's a normative aspect that pushes reason to kick in. And this is what's interesting in, my, in the work that I do on dehumanization. There seems to be a world where the affectivity doesn't kick in reason towards certain groups of people. So then that failure would have to say, if we're going through this separation, the failure would have to say, then that's not rational. But we know that is rational because ra completely rational, educated, free, autonomous societies have made decisions to group different people into non-being. So if, that, if the social failure of not recognizing something pulls us back to reflect on what then is reason versus emotion, we'd have to say something like, what we take to be a pure reason or a rational argument for X or Y seems to be a more general, be, to be more located in a general sentiment that groups have about what they want to justify and what they will to structure. So Tommy, I want to take, that's a very good place to lead on to the second theme about whether we need to step back from and detach ourselves from emotion to make calmer decisions in very important political times. We see emotion driving the mob that turned up on January 6th to storm the Capitol. Julian will say they also had reasons, but emotion, big driver of that. 
So we have appeals to the law. We have appeals to the constitution in our politics, which is very divisive. And there's a lot of populist sort of eliciting of sentiment. Isn't it important that we have socially constructed these rules, standards, procedures by which we drop the emotional temperature a little bit? And courts are usually set up because people might want to take the law into their own hands immediately. And you say, you're not in a position to make a good judgment here. Let us set up this system where 12 of your peers will decide. Isn't it terribly important to have these dispassionate procedures? Absolutely. But what what I would caution, though, is that I would think that the procedures we have, like the rule of law, et cetera, are the product of someone's emotion and affectivity. So if you're looking at the United States, for instance, the general desire that the state's not taken down by militias and revolutionaries is something that the founding fathers and, you know, the people in power decided, hey, this directly benefits me. And it's the same works the same way in the United States with the court system. So the way the U.S. court system works is based on star decisis. So you have a precedent and you make a decision in a case and that case serves as the rule that you're trying to interpret other cases. And again, this goes back to the fact there are certain popular beliefs that we have and there's certain people in power have. And then there's a general will to make that the more general rule by which we intuitively grasp these ideas. So on the one hand, I agree, there should be general rules that are not able to be overridden and and overthrown simply on individual self-justification or effectivity, right? We agree on that. The question is, does what stands as the rational rule of law or reason itself, not the product of those other groups who had the same effectivity towards the disposition? So in the case with the corporate, when they're storming the Capitol, the funny part about that is they fundamentally believe, because it's not just the rule of law versus the individual in the United States. These white people really did believe that they could storm the Capitol because they're white, that they'll be completely because they're supporting Trump. The idea was we support the imperial president. So the imperial president is a justification for our actions. They thought it superseded the law, which in America is a completely justifiable reason if you're a certain population. So again, this is what I'm saying. Is that the failure of reason or is that the operation of reason towards a different end? Yeah, because they certainly thought they were somehow defending the Constitution more fundamentally than the current government. So, Julian, let's go back to that sort of case. Can we be optimistic that we seek for those pursuits of reason that will allow us to have social order or justice or fairness? Tommy's suggesting it's always in the service of some group's emotional grounding, but Do you have a more optimistic view that we could actually get something which collectively we could agree to and think, here's justice, here's fairness, based on reason, even if it's motivated initially by emotion? I think there's been a kind of a philosophical hope that sort of people associate, I think people like Plato in particular, that we can come up with these ideal perfect forms of justice, truth, knowledge, and we can get there eventually. And I think I can't really see that for various reasons. I don't think we need to worry about that. What we need to think about is direction of travel, right? So in the same kind of way that could we ever have perfect objectivity and see the world like gods will know because we're embodied, we have our capacities of our things, but can we become more objective? Well, yes, and we have done. Modern science is considerably takes a more objective view of the world than a lot of the sort of its, its predecessors. And so I think that, I suppose, I, I, so much of what Tommy says I think is right, and I'm not I don't want to misinterpret them, don't get it wrong, but I don't know how much your reason has failed or whether or not we have failed to use reason to its full potential, yeah, right? Yeah, that's what we're trying to get And at. I think Good. that's the point. Now, I think to its full potential, let's not kid ourselves, right? 
if we think we can ever reach a stage where we're going to be able to think without all prejudice, cultural conditioning, etc., we're never going to get there. But can we get further that way? I think we can. And I think there are optimistic reasons for saying this. I think that, you know, there's a lot of like kicking of liberal values going on at the moment. Fair enough. And maybe it's not even liberal values. But I think the very fact that there has been imperfect progress made in the direction of anti-racism, anti-sexism and so forth. We shouldn't be at all complacent that we're anywhere near where we ought to be. But, and you can't even see what's happened as being progress unless you have some kind of fairly optimistic view that by being more rational, and partly the collective thing's important, I think this is the point, it's just a slight aside, but I'm quite impressed by trends in psychology, the social cognition model, which has said that we're a little bit hampered by the idea that in the Western philosophical tradition, we have thought of reason as being paradigmatically something an individual does alone in their own head. And actually, reason has evolved as a function is a much more social thing. And I think we often make progress rational. We reach a more rational society partly by having a better collective conversation in which we involve more people than have historically been involved. So I've gone on a bit too long, Barry, there. But I think the point is, yeah, progress in this direction, becoming more rational, becoming more reasonable, is something that if we don't believe in that, then I think what we left with, aren't we just left with a battle of wills to power? But let's go back to this idea of... um there being systems that we can try to formulate. I, and again, I really want to tease out from Gunnar's idea, she said, we get beyond ourselves, we look out, we're using, is it just special computing power or does it have a chance to embody some of the kind of negotiation of the sort that we've just been talking about? Yeah, I think that is, I think you said effectively the same thing that I said. Is a reason just a reason because somebody has identified it as such? What makes it a reason? Is it just because I, this is my reason and I give it, there it is, I've thought about it, this is my reason. Is that sufficient to call it a reason? And the point is, of course, it 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 is, society is critical to the to the acquiescence or otherwise of this thing as being a reason. That's why we have courts, for example. If I kill someone for a good reason in my head, it doesn't matter whether or not it is actually a reason or not a reason gets decided by a group of individuals, right? And that's what I was trying to get at when I was saying that reason has to be this thing that you can externalize from yourself and can be accepted by others as valid. And that is the only way in which I think you can probably, and I'm completely out of my wheelhouse here, not being a philosopher, I realize, but as I understand it, that would be the only way in which I could justifiably say, no, this really was a reason. If somebody else can take that thing and say, yep, makes sense to me too. And the further away from the person who you're passing that to is, I think the closer you become to that final point you were making, Julian, about being closer to perfection, let's call it that, right? Or to a better version of ourselves. So I want to yeah. go on with that line, press you a little bit, because I think even though you're all accepting this separation between reason and emotion, they take in one another's washing, as we're seeing. That's happening in all of this discussion. We can have a very empty concept of reason, which is just means-end reasoning. In fact, Hume was quite tempted by that. That's all it can do. You've got your desires. They'll set the goals and targets. And then you calculate, how do I get my goals met? And of course, there are lots of neuroscience colleagues who are doing lots of that decision-making just on a, an empty means-end reasoning scale. And then there are others who want to load up 
reasons. You use that lovely phrase, I could try to persuade people I had a reason to kill someone. That's not means end. That's Now we're loading it with something more weighty. And of course, people like Damasio will say, you, you, as Julian alluded to, if you just had the power to means end reason, it won't move you to anything. You've got to actually have some investment. And those notions of reason that you're using look much weightier, more invested, as though they borrowed a little bit from emotion. So do you really want such a clean separation between the visceral, physiological upheavals and then this here I am talking to everybody and they'll be able to see my... I think I was thinking this thing you just asked made me think of something that I was thinking while you were talking, Tommy, as well. That I think that there's the reason and then there's the pros- the reasoning that leads to that, yes. if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. And I think perhaps actually my answer to your question would be, I think emotion is critical into feeding into reasoning, into making that process happen to happen. Excuse me, grammar's failing me now. And... I'm okay with that. I think that's just how humans work, how humans' minds work. Yeah. But I still think that the end point, the outcome, should be something devoid. I'm not saying it it intrinsically doesn't elicit emotion, and I'm not saying it wasn't driven by emotion in its product, but its function itself is a-emotional, if that makes sense. A bit like a craftsman can build a wonderful table. Yeah. You can pour emotion into it, but the outcome in the end is the way it is, it is a table. And then the person who takes it from you should be able to say, oh, that is a table. I can use it. And then suddenly have an emotional reaction to this thing. Does that kind of it make does, sense? Because it, it does, because that's, of course, what the judiciary are trying to do once both lawyers have laid out their case. They're trying to say, now I'll look at it without emotions and I'll see the merits, as it were. So reason capital R, I'm getting a better grip on what you're after. But let's move on to the third theme, which is whether the paradigm of reason, if we let it, if we liberate ourselves from strict re-control and we rely on emotions, are we going to be driven into factions depending on the emotional setting? So, for example, let me, something that worried me as an undergraduate, so I'm going to make you my philosophy tutor and you're going to sort me out. So, as Julian said, people try to come up with these universal prescriptions of how we might order ourselves and live. So, you've got Rawls coming up with a scheme which is going to give you an idea of justice, an idea of uh, social fairness and so on. And then you've got Nozick comes up with an equally reasoned alternative to this. It's a very libertarian notion. Why should I pay anything into the state if I'm looking after myself and my talents are getting me through? In the end, we've got these two very strong competing theories. Do we just feel for one or feel for the other or is there... Or is there reason? Or is there reason that's going to get us from one day? So, yeah. so Tommy, sort me out. This is the problem that I'm announcing, right? That if you have something driven by affectivity that becomes the general rule that you want to be see as divorce, what happens when you have two different products? Both of them fit your criteria of being rationally produced, right? Both of them are spawned by the senses that lead us to a different process where we have this in. And at the end of the day, doing this is what I said. I know it's hard to accept, but why is society not simply a will to power? Every single rational argument that we've dealt with in the history of philosophy has been refuted or challenged on the basis that those people or that society or that culture had more power to make their idea of reason and the good more effectively or even violate the people that we know. So it seems to me that the irreconcilable tension between how we think of reason and rationality is that inevitably means that the general rule that we think is pure, right, the product of some cognitive process that philosophy and biology give us 
It's just the general will of whatever that individual can do to garner other people. So think, for example, of this, right? We don't like to think of Nazism. We don't like to think of Nazism as a rational argument, okay? But I've read Hitler and I've read Wagner and I've read people like all the people like Josiah Royce and Chamberlain. It is completely rational because it's the same argument that you get coming from British empiricists during the same period of time about why Anglo-Saxonism is the purest and more rational way for the world to be ruled. So we have two completely different ideas, both allegedly separated from emotion because it's the testament of how history has shown two of the greatest civilizations, the Toots and the Anglo-Saxons, vying for the good, the beautiful, and the true, right? They're drawn by the aesthetic idea, right? So if you take that as the basis of how we're supposed to make rule-based decisions, how do you adjudicate which civilization should rule or destroy the other? Because individual reasons, that rational product that we think comes about, this is the good, this is the law, human beings matter, then what happens when you see people violate that? Or you think a certain culture is savage and violates that? Or better yet, when you see certain people in society that you say these people are criminal, but they serve some other good, right? Like you have right now with your country and your monarchy, which have some bad people involved, right? How do, are these rational decisions? Are these effective decisions? Or, but wait, maybe the idea of having a stable government is a rational end. So is that a justification for itself to overlook the other ills? The irreconcilability of what we also seek pr to produce and enforce at the end is part of the problem with us thinking that reason is a pure capacity. So I'm going to, uh, let me put heat on them there. I want to bring you in. So it, it sounds then as though we've got these competing rationally worked political systems and then- Conceding that for the thought experiment. Yeah. Right, for the thought experiment. Yeah. And then what you would try to do is move people emotionally onto your turf yeah. to make them feel inclined to choose the ideology that you want. But then I want to remind you, you're a professor of philosophy, yeah. you try to teach people to have more critical attitude to this. So isn't there a way to debug that a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what I want to say is that the debunking is not a pure reason issue. Remember, when, when it's not just rhetoric either. No, no. certainly not right, rhetoric. Right. Certainly not rhetoric. One of the things that Du Bois understood when dealing with issues of social inequality is that propaganda and ideology also play a role yeah. in how people make decisions. Yeah. So when you have two rational ends, my job as a philosopher is not or to convince you isn't simply going to be rhetorical and ideological. I'm not just trying to build that. What I'm trying to do is point out a failure of one system that may disadvantage or create more harm than good, right? But what I want to suggest is that even when doing that, what I have to appeal to is the idea that the population I'm speaking to can be moved by the rational yeah. ends I'm asserting. Yeah. And that's often what gets ignored, I think, amongst philosophers, is that we can talk about the social psychological effects of how people are motivated by certain goods, certain ends, certain biases. But reason itself is not the correction to those biases, desires, et cetera. And what we end up doing as philosophers is saying, here are the rules of the good, here are all the rational reasons, that should be enough to motivate people. But what we end up finding over and over again is that the people who have a rational argument also have lots of resources yeah. to motivate pathos as well as people's the desires that people have for a certain end. The they day, sometimes play that down. They so, play that yeah. down because we want the illusion of objectivity. Yeah. And all I'm trying to say is that if we take a more critical view of what we see reason is, we also see that reason is both a collective agreement and consensus about what that end is and the power to achieve it. And that's operating in what we think and reflect upon as well. Great. Convinced, Julian? Yeah, yeah no, I, th I might be. I think, because, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not entirely sure how much I'm going to, I disagree. 
Tommy, because I'm agreeing with Maybe it's just the framing of it. Yeah, I think I'd be a little bit more, put it a bit more optimistically, because I think what you're trying to highlight, and I think for good reasons, is the ways in which people are self-deluded about their power to be objective and their powers, sure. whatever, right? But the danger is that, and that there's a rhetorical and moral purpose in doing that, but it, the danger is it overstates how far we can go in the rational direction. Now, I, wanna, I, know, I don't want to go too long. So let's say, for example, how much do reasons constrain us? Well, actually, in science, in a lot of the natural sciences, basically anyone who understands the facts enough is going to agree on the same situation, right? So there are domains of human knowledge where if you play the rational game, you are going to converge. But very clearly in lots of ones we don't. And I think we don't like to admit this. In philosophy, for example, why is it that equally intelligent smart philosophers can end up preferring two different systems? There's got to be an element of like temperament, judgment, personality. It's got to be involved. We've got to admit that. But all I want to suggest is that before we get too pessimistic about that, the power of reasoned argument to push people more towards certain things and to eliminate certain possibilities is greater than we think. So, for example, if you have a racist ideology which is based on claims about the inferiority of certain races, etc., that is going to be demolished by fact, right? Because there is no scientific basis for assuming that certain the whole concept of race is in itself a scientifically questionable one. Maybe a socially useful one, I don't know. And also other things. So, for example, we can use reason to oppose these kind of crude sort of populist nationalisms we're getting because it's based on the idea of there being a kind of a unified essence of nationhood. It is, so I'm half Italian and in Italy at the moment, large, the party that won most votes is basically making its case on the idea that they have to protect the Italian way. Now, you can attack that rationally to show this is an illusion. There wasn't even a unified Italy until the late 19th century. Even Italian cuisine is a product of importing tomatoes from the New World and basil from China and all that kind of stuff. You can show by reason that the whole project is based on things which are not true. So this is a small example. So I think we can reason in that kind of way that cuts across pure prejudice is a tool for erasing things. Can we ever get to the point where reason will convince everybody to accept the same vision of society, the same idea of justice? No. But fortunately, I don't think we need to get to that stage to get to a society which is better than the one we have. Okay, but I, goodness, you may want to comment on that, but I also want you to maybe think, now I'm going to push in the other direction, that emotions are not as lumpen than just this thing, it's just affect. But actually, there's a lot of settings, there's a lot of complicated stuffs going on in us to produce it. How much are we people with different levels of arousal? How much are we people who are more moved by emotion, less dangerous territory, biological sex differences, et cetera, et cetera. So don't we have to probe into that a little bit to see if we're going to have an ineliminable element of affectivity or wider emotional influence on our reason judgment? We better find out more about all the differences, individual differences in emotion. Sure. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with that at all. People have different, as Julian even said, right, the differences between philosophers' personalities may impact the sort of outcomes that they get to. Definitely. We all almost intuitively know that when you sit down with your group of best friends, you can almost predict who's going to be like, oh, about the same thing can happen and everyone will have different reactions to it. We know that. That's fine. That's how it works. The, the, and we've talked about it, the function of collectives is to average out those kinds of things, to find something that can be 
greater, more stable, dare I say it, more correct at times. But then, of course, we do then have the problem of social dynamics and the role of emotion in social dynamics and then swaying people into thinking that what they've ended up with is a reason. And I alluded to this earlier. Reasons shouldn't be able to self-identify, right? It shouldn't be just, here is my reason, that's how it is. And something worth saying at this point, I know we only have a couple of minutes left, but I think several of the examples that have been put forward by, by Tommy and Julian, and Julian just said it in his last comments, in fact, something can be logical, can be reasoned out, can be rational, but come from a wrong starting point. Yeah. And it's still reasonable and still rational, but you just have to be able to say, oh, that was, but you started in the wrong place. That was wrong. The fact you had there was wrong. And I wonder if that's actually where this whole enamorment with science and scientific fact is coming from at the moment in our society, because there are a lot of things that we probably can eliminate in terms of poor reason or rash, poor reasons, or what I would say aren't actual reasons. They are social averages masquerading as reasons by virtue of the people who've decided that'll do for us. I don't think there's anybody on I don't think that there's any reason that could be justified for leaving a human being on the street. And if you think you have a, a reason for it, I think you're wrong. I think that would be the case because if you go to anywhere on earth and ask an individual, do you think this is acceptable? I, I would be I'd love to do the study on it. And that's my point. I think that there needs to be a lot more science. Science has a role in this in terms of clarifying stuff, the reality of our world. But we might find some pretty uncomfortable things on the road that we might not want to handle. And this is where my specialism comes in, for example. Yes. So I study how males and females um, bodies initially are specified and made and how they are different. And I am a female. I have two X chromosomes and two functional ovaries. As far as I know, I've had them all checked out and verified. So that is, in fact, a fact. There are other good scientists who do studies on what those things mean for my behaviors and perceptions and whatnot. And then as a human being, you get to the place where you're like, gosh, this might get quite uncomfortable because it might end up being the case that science tells me that for various scientific reasons, I'm more likely to do certain kinds of behaviors have certain kinds of compulsions at certain time. And that might be, in fact, factually correct. And how do you, as a human being now, integrate that information into your self, into how you carry yourself through society? And that's quite uncomfortable. And I can see why it, that compulsion to then start rejecting these kinds of things comes from. But I think I'm a little bit hard line about this. I think that to get to that positive world that you're envisaging, Julian, we have to knuckle down and be realists and be like, okay, this might be how it is, but also we do so many things as humans. We have this social structure. We have this ability to be regulated. Otherwise, we have reason. We have this thing called reason that gives me, that compels me to do things other than what simply my emotions want because I'm held in line by everybody else. And that doesn't change my compulsion or, of, or the reality of where those things came from. They are separate things that come together to ensure that, yes, I exist, I have my feelings, I have my compulsions, biology impacts me the way it is, 
but also we have a set of organized reasons that you might call society. And I trust that everyone helps us build those things better so that then we operate together. So reason not the need for continuing because we've come to an end. And I want to invite you to join with me in thanking our speakers, Tommy Curry, Gunesh Taylor, and Julian Virginie. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting debate. Many questions were answered, but some left outstanding. Thanks very much for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to give us a like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.